Welcome to the ISA Science of Arboriculture podcast series. This is Dr. Tom Smiley at the Bartlett Tree Research Laboratory with this month's installment of the ISA podcast series. This series is brought to you by the Bartlett Tree Expert Company, caring for America's trees since 1907. This podcast series offers full-length educational talks by the world's top researchers, educators, and practitioners helping you to keep up to date with developments in the arboricultural industry. Today's talk is by Dr. Greg Moore, a research associate of Burnley College at the University of Melbourne. He is on the board of the Greening Australia and Sustainable Gardening Australia. He is also a trustee of the Trust for Nature. This podcast features Dr. Moore's talk on the value of urban trees during climate change. It was originally presented at the ISA International Conference in Parramatta, Australia in July 2011. Good afternoon everybody. I'm delighted to be here and to be talking to you. Um, this topic I think is, is really quite significant at the moment because we are at a turning point of where we want things to go. And I want to remind you of where we've come from. Uh, fairly quickly, I must admit. Uh, this is a, a lovely temperate Australian rainforest. And in less than 100 years, we turned it into this. We overcleared, we've seen the erosion, we've removed the vegetation. And if that's not scary enough, if you look at this slide, it shows you the community, the vegetation types that once dominated Australia about a hundred years ago. Now there's too much information on that for you to really gain much from it, but what I'd like you to note is the, the elements of green, because they are essentially woody vegetation dominated ecosystems. 150 years ago and today. Now this just reminds us that people make a difference. It reminds us that we can make a difference for good, we can make a difference for ill, but we can sure make a difference. And we can make a difference very, very quickly. With climate change, incredibly topical debate, probably more topical in Australia now than it was when I conceived this topic, we all know that there's a, a, an element of uncertainty what we're pretty confident of is that there's a human component of climate change. How big that component is and what the extent and the actual measurable degree of change will be is hotly debated. But if the previous four slides showed you anything, they showed you that human beings can change things on a massive scale over a very short time frame. If you look at this particular projection. This is a fairly conservative projection of what's going to happen 
with temperatures around the world. One is under a low emission scenario, the other under a high emission scenario. Now you might just wonder what those mean, you can go to the IPCC documents to see that, but essentially low emission is if we do all the right things, all the things that you can think of to reduce emissions, that's a low emissions. High emissions doesn't mean that we tear up the sort of rule book and just behave like absolute vandals, uh, it means we go on as we are. Maybe that is because we've torn up the rule book and behaved like absolute vandals, but you can make up your own mind about that. What I would like you to look at is the column, and probably the 2090 to 2099 column is the one to look at, because you can actually see there, particularly on this side, my side of the table, temperature changes of 4 to 7, 3 to 5, 6 degrees and so on. It's not uniform, and this is a fairly sort of conservative scenario. Now, there are other scenarios, by the way. Barry Brooks, who is the Professor of Climate Change and Climate Science at the University of Adelaide, basically says that the IPCC is great for putting papers together and getting lots of data, but he actually considers them to be fairly conservative. And so he actually paints a scenario where things are not going to be as pleasant as the previous scenarios might suggest. He tells us, for example, that global temperature might rise 6 to 8 degrees, which is starting to get to the top end of the temperature range. He tells us that Australian temperatures are going up 1 degree, as you can see here. He tells us that the polar ice caps might melt more rapidly than we previously believed possible. And he reminds us that if the polar ice caps do melt, then their re re reflectivity of incoming radiation is reduced, and so you then start remodelling under another scenario again, because temperature rises will be much more rapid than we've so far seen. Now, when I use these sorts of um, data, people often say, well, are you being alarmist? You're trying to scare the pants off us. I don't need these to scare the pants off you. What's the point? This is just so that we are aware of what the future is going to be. And why do we as arborists want to be aware of what the future might be? Because we as arborists can do something about it. And if you don't think there's a problem, then you're not going to look for a solution. If you do recognise there's a problem and you can do something about it, then surely that's all the encouragement you, can ne you need. Because the truth, the simple truth of the matter is that there's a, a sort of a chicken little syndrome. Climate change does appear to be happening. People are running around saying, well, isn't it interesting? We've had the worst fires, we've had the worst storms, we've had more droughts, we've had more major storm events in the last few years than we've ever had before, all consistent with climate change. And what can we do about it? I've listened to the politicians, some of you in this room know my opinion of politicians, um, you've heard me before, but the politicians are out there telling us that, for example, we Australians shouldn't do anything, because those Chinese and Indians, if we do the right thing, in a couple of days 
they negate what we've done. And what's the evidence for that? What's the basis for that? The evidence is zilch. And the basis, you would think, is we can't do anything. Now, I can tell you that if you look after the urban forest, you can change the impact that climate and temperature has on a whole city. If you look after the urban and peri-urban forests, you can change the impact of climate change for a whole region. So, for example, we've talked in the previous slide about temperature rises of three, four, five, six, maybe even eight degrees. But every one of you in this room has read the articles in the Journal of Arboriculture and Urban Forestry or in Arborist News that have said vegetation and trees in particular will counter the heat island effect by how much? Five degrees. That shade on a building will lower the temperature by how much? Eight degrees. So if you can imagine that you take the view of your city and your region as your responsibility, your responsibility to maintain the vegetation and the urban forest, we can make a difference. Now, if that's not sort of a challenge for us, if that's not sort of asking us to seize the day, then what else is? We can make a difference where often no one else can. In this part of Australia, we're going to see some interesting phenomena. We're going to see generally warmer and hotter summers. We know that. We're going to have a more tropical climate. Some of us might actually like that, to come from Melbourne and Tasmania. We're going to have more easterly winds. Now, interestingly enough, this more easterly winds, for me in Victoria, tells me that we're going to have different summers. It tells me that fires are going to behave differently. And in 2009, on Black Saturday, it was the easterly winds in many places that really caused serious grief. One of my long-term botanical colleagues was so convinced that when the fire would come to his property, it would come from the north and the west, he had all his defences brilliantly done, except that on the east side, the water lines from his water tanks were plastic and when the fire came from the east he had no water and his plan went out the window how long have we been predicting easterly winds in summer under a climate change scenario a mere 20 years so why weren't people ready for it and essentially in my own state up until 2009 the government said yes there will be climate change yes we'll have a policy but nothing changed and the media was so interested in having an adversarial debate about the matter that they didn't have a view and neither did most of the citizens. So the warnings of over two decades of what might happen didn't reach the ears that they should have reached. There are other warnings here about storm events. Storm events. Do you know, I find it absolutely wonderful that we can have five major storm events in three years, events that were described as one in a hundred year events, one in 30 year events, and one in 50 year events. 
Now, you have them all in a couple of years, you begin to think these are indicative of our climate and the state of change. And you would think that from these storm events, you would take the opportunity to learn. What happens if this does become more of the, the norm? What lessons do we learn? What do we tell our people? How do we change our systems? But we adopted the greatest cop out of all. We said that they were rare events, they were acts of God, and after all, who can do anything about an act of God? Well, we could have. We could have said that our overground, overhead electricity supply in a whole range of places should have been undergrounded. But we didn't. We replaced an obsolete system with the same obsolete system in a matter of weeks. There are opportunities here for us over and over and over again. There are opportunities for many in this room. I look around. I know there are a number of Victorians here who were dealing with the aftermath of the Black Saturday fires. To my, the best of my knowledge, the Black Saturday fires in 2009 represented a major change in government and bureaucratic thinking because Arbrus, for the first time, had a major role in the cleaning up and mopping up operation. It was Arbrus who said those trees are unsafe. It was Arborist who said those trees will survive. It was Arborist who knew that leaving trees in certain places represented beacons of hope for communities who thought things would never get back to normal. It was Arborist who said, leave that vegetation. And in the spring, when it greens up and renews, people's hopes will resurrect. And they did. Prior to that, Who'd done the mopping up? Any old Tom, Dick and Harry. Anyone who could use a chainsaw. Most of them not even properly trained. A major change for the better. It's not all going to be bad news. Of course it's not going to be all bad news. Floods are going to be different. Frosts are not going to affect certain places. And every time you put up one of these effects, I'd like to think that you in this room as arborists are saying... What does that mean for the trees? And in some instances, the first things that come to your mind will be negative thoughts. But for each of these points, there are the upsides and there are the downsides. I look forward to certain of my favourite species being planted around Melbourne without having to worry about frost protection. Now there's an up. Now you might say, I'm a glass glass half full person, and I am. So, what does all this lead me to? This leads me to say, recognize the value of your vegetation. Recognize the value of your green space. Recognize the value of your public open space, and recognize the value of each of the trees that make up the urban forest. When you look at a slide like this, I want you to think to yourselves, the rail yards, no vegetation. What happens when the temperature rises, somewhat unexpectedly, to 46 degrees? And you see all those lovely curved rails? They started to go wavy. 
So what did they do? They slowed the trains down because they were fearful of derailing. And then they got a poor chap with a hose and he went out pouring water onto the rail. Now, isn't it interesting? No water for any of the vegetation, but as soon as the rails got too hot, they didn't have any trouble finding water for that. Now, why isn't there any vegetation shading those rails? Why haven't people thought this through? What is the value of the parkland along the river? What's the value of the vegetation shading the roadways? And I don't just mean an airy-fairy valuation, I mean the dollars. So that we can talk to the engineers. I heard Ken James say that engineers weren't all bad. Heard him say that last night and I agree with him. But boy, they're much easier to talk to when you're talking numbers, particularly with a dollar sign in front of them. So, I want you to think of all of the benefits. Now, one of the things that I would like to do is I'm looking around here. Can, some of you have probably had lunch. You've listened to Francis Schwarzer and you've been entranced and now you've got me and you're starting to doze off. I want to know how many in this room are Australian. Thank you, hands down. This list is incomplete and I'm going to put a few things up that I've tried to put monetary values on. And then I'm going to put a few things up that I've thought about but maybe you haven't. And here's the challenge. If you think that you can put a monetary value against some aspect, some functional service that urban vegetation provides that we haven't thought about, you send me an email. gmore at unimalb.edu.au Now some of you in this room are saying, well why is it only the Australians? Well, I figured that the Australians might actually send me an email. But if you're from overseas and you want to send me an email, I'd be more than happy to have it. In other words, I'm issuing, issuing you a challenge. This is the second challenge that I've issued in the course of this talk. There are three or four others yet to come. So, let's start looking at putting a value. The changes that we're going to get as a result of climate change are quite remarkable. We're going to get early spring growth. It's already happened in a whole range of cities. We're going to have tree line expansion. Some good aspects to that. We're going to have problems with plants moving into regions where they haven't been during human settlement. We're going to have thinning of forests. This is already happening in the Northern Hemisphere because what you're going to find is that there will be massive insect predation and the insects will graze at a faster rate than the trees can grow. So there are going to be reduced tree populations, higher tree mortality. Already in our rainforest here in Australia, certain species are declining and there's evidence that they're not being replaced. In the near Asian region, when they have typhoons, we'll find that the wind speeds are higher and there'll be more wind-thrown trees. So getting it right in our cities, understanding the role is going to be really important because there are going to be those who say 
the cost of the trees is too high. That one fell over. That one causes cracking in pavements. And we've got to be ready to counter and to counterpunch hard with numbers. So here are some numbers for you. And these are numbers in Australian dollars and for our American friends and from those overseas. At the moment, you might as well just do the one-for-one one conversion. Okay, it's a nice, thing, nice easy numbers to do. And here you can see some savings in terms of water and electricity that are generated by shade in the city of Melbourne from 100,000 mature street trees. Why 100,000? Because in Melbourne there are about 70,000 publicly owned trees in the inner city area, about 30 to 40,000 privately owned trees, population of about 100. In most of the large municipalities that surround the city, the number of trees within the, um, the public sphere is somewhere around 60,000 or above. So I've rounded up to 100,000. And you can see the sorts of savings that we're talking about here. 500,000 in a year in electricity alone. 450,000 in water savings. Per tree it comes down to a mere $10. A mere $10 per tree. But it's only one small component. And some of you in this room might be surprised to learn that by valuing the water that's saved from the shade, you should be able to justify using some of that water to irrigate those plants. The odd thing in many of our cities, by not irrigating, and if your trees defoliate, you actually have a higher water use in the city than if you'd irrigated. Now, do you reckon that sounds slightly stupid? We don't allow you to water, the trees defoliate and die, and what was the purpose? Oh yeah, to save water, but now that we've got no shade, the city's higher, uh, the temperatures are higher, the evaporation is higher, we're using more electricity. To generate electricity in Victoria, we use, as you can see here, 100 litres per kilowatt hour. We actually increase water use. The outcome is the direct opposite to what the authorities and the politicians intended. The carbon fixed in the urban forest. Now, I must say, I hope many of you are, are aware of the calculators that Greg, Greg McPherson has on his USDA website. Um, very accurate in many ways. If you read those calculators, they tell you that it's not as easy to work out exactly how much carbon there is in a mature tree. This is rough sort of stuff, but you come up at about 10 tonnes of carbon in a tree. Uh, when I did this valuation, I wasn't quite sure what the Australian government was going to put on the price of carbon, so I put 20 bucks. So it comes up as you can see here, uh, you know, a million dollars worth of carbon in those trees. Uh, already the value has gone up uh, by about a sixth because they're going to start off at $23, work their way up perhaps to $30. Um, of course, if you were looking at euros, you'd be looking at 30 euros, which is roughly one and a half times or you know, something like $30 um, Australian. So the value of the carbon on a global market is really quite significant and again, shouldn't be underestimated. So you can see here for a single tree, about four bucks a year. Um, I just thought I'd throw that up. None of us would do that. Bit of line clearing. 
And uh, I just wanted to remind you that uh, I've still got the overhead distribution of power companies in my sights. Let's go from an every opportunity. Here we have, you prune the canopy. What are you doing? You're pruning off carbon. How much you're pruning off? Depends what your pruning regime is. 30, 20, 10%, you're pruning it off. Now, you can put a dollar value on that. When you do something like this, you can start saying, well, let's prune 100 trees. How much carbon do you prune off? Prune off 30%, 3,000 bucks. You prune off 20%, uh, 2,000, 1,000. This is all at the $20 a tonne. Now, my point here is this is a two-edged sword. This is a two-edged sword. You can cut the blighters swinging this way and that. If with this data, what do I mean by it? The power distribution companies are amongst the highest carbon producers in our nation. They shouldn't be pruning any trees because they're polluting. They should be undergrounding. They will tell you they can't afford it. Well, that's because they don't value the carbon. They don't work out for 100 trees, there's 3,000 bucks. They haven't done any of that. And it's going to be very interesting because in Victoria, after the Black Saturday fires, the Royal Commission recommended in certain areas where population densities were high and risks were great enough, services should be undergrounded. The government came out immediately and said, too expensive. So they're having an inquiry. And the results of that inquiry are due in September. Now my gut feeling is that they will do a brilliant job at costing the, um, the installation of an underground electricity system. But will they put the benefits and the savings? What about the reduced pruning costs? What about the excess carbon? Are they going to be put in as compensation? Sure, it's going to cost billions, but it's going to save billions. How many of you heard Jane Tarrant at Trinet a few years ago say that she did an analysis of the accidents in New South Wales? where there were people who drove cars into trees that leapt out at them. And there were a number of fatalities. And the consequence was, because these trees are leaping in front of cars, we should get rid of the trees. So she did analysis on how many people died by crashing into power poles. And the number that cr died crashing into power poles far exceeded those crashing into trees. And where was the call to the elimination of power poles that were leaping in front of cars. Can you imagine how much saving there will be? Will those savings be put against undergrounding? I suspect not. So be ready for a fight, because if we lose in Victoria the capacity to underground, every state in this nation will lose that opportunity for at least another 20 years. And we as arborists must not stand for it. Now is the time. There is too much data out there showing the benefits of mature canopies and root systems that can be left intact. You can work out similar budgets for carbon on how much root systems you've removed. But I point out to you that roots have a wonderful value, 
particularly those which have lignotubers and basal burls, they have a real economic value. And most of the carbon estimates for root systems don't include all of the organic matter, all of the microorganisms, all of the um, mycorrhizal fungi that are associated with them. There are many of us who believe that when you apply the algorithms for calculating carbon, when you apply them to roots, you are underestimating the amount of carbon fixed by a minimum of 100%, and some would argue by between three and four fold. These algorithms will change, and when they do change, what will they tell us? They will tell us that trees and vegetation are even more valuable than we've been led to believe thus far. This is about the cost of bitumen. Now, I issued a challenge on this. Here is my estimate of 100,000 trees shading bitumen, prolonging the life by a mere 50% from, as you can see here, from 20 to 30 years. If you read some of the European literature, the shade of the bitumen can double the life or even triple the life of bitumen. I want you to look at these numbers. I want you to tell me where I've got them wrong. Because when I say 562 million, everyone goes, oh, that's a joke. Well, I'm telling you, it's not a joke. I want you to show me where I'm wrong. And I'll give you a couple of insights. You only get the value from shade, and I conceded this in writing, if you've got a continuous canopy. If you've got a mottled effect, a tree here, another tree, then you don't actually have any saving because the road will still break up in between the trees. But if you've got a completely tree-lined avenue, you get the 100% benefit. So don't come back to me and say, oh yes, if it's mottled, you don't get the full value. That's conceded. Also, when I put this up, I had two engineers email me. And what did they say? They said that I was blatantly biased. I'm not blatantly biased. Why am I blatantly biased? They said because you'd put up the benefit and you didn't talk about the cracking of the bitumen and damage caused by the roots. Now, I have an answer for them. From 1979 up until 2010, no talk that I ever heard from an engineer talked about the benefits that the shade from the trees might provide. So for 30 years, they told us the costs of all the damage. They never mentioned the benefit once. Okay, so in 20 years from now, I'll start mentioning some of the problems. We're even. Before that, all I can say is bugger them. Now, a couple of other things. Have you heard about, thought about the value of trees in stopping landslides. There is a wonderful poster out there, did you see it? About the liquefaction of soils during the Christchurch earthquakes. Now, we have landslips, and I've watched vegetation and the effects of vegetation, on vegetation of landslips when the soil is similarly in liquid form. But here, I want you to realize that after the Black Saturday fires, in a several sites, the trees were removed and the roots were ground out with a stump grinder. They could then no longer build because the insurance company said, 
these sites are now unstable and you cannot reconstruct your dwelling. They've got a block of land, their house has been burnt down and now they're being told they can't rebuild because they've chopped all the trees down. That's pretty devastating news. But there's an upside. And the upside is, if you want to build on that block, you can use a piling system, an engineering design, brilliantly done, piling system that will consolidate the site. It'll cost you between 40 and 60, I've rounded it to 50,000. Or you can wait, and if you're lucky, 10 years, trees will be big enough, consolidate the site. You lose the value of your block for 10 years. So you can work out quite simply that on very steep slopes, trees provide, if you use the piling example, $1,000 per tree, on average, of value in consolidating that site. If you use the value over a 50-year period, the value of the tree is about $200. Now, when some of you are out there dealing with people on steep blocks who don't like a few leaves in their gutters and want the tree removed, you nail them to the wall. You tell them that those trees are providing them with a service that would cost them otherwise a minimum of 200 and up to $1,000 a year. And they might think differently if they're on unstable soil. The value of shade I've mentioned in general about reducing temperatures, but this one is much more focused. A whole lot of schools had wonderful trees in their school grounds providing shade. And someone in their wisdom, and I use the word wisdom with as much sarcasm as I can muster, someone in their wisdom said, these schools are in possible fire sites. We don't want to be found liable if the trees catch fire. One of these trees was in a bitumen playground, surrounded by bitumen on all sides. The tree was removed. Another was in the middle of a recreation turfed area. The tree was removed. I know of many of them that were removed. And it was done during the school holidays. Parents were given three days warning before the, the schools closed and the trees were gone when they came back. Now, I don't think there's anything suspicious in that, do you? I don't think that. I think that was just the way the system works. I'm sure they didn't do it to make sure there were no protests. I'm sure they didn't do it to make sure there were no parents reacting. And they got away with it until, to the surprise of everyone, in October, it got hot. Isn't that amazing? A place like Australia... In October, it got hot, and there was no shade. No problem, we'll get some shade sails. So they had to buy shade sails, and here is the cost of the shade sails. Now, interestingly enough, they didn't have a budget for them. None of the schools could afford them. How bizarre. How bizarre. What sort of behaviour is that? So you can now put a value on a tree by comparing it with the value of the shade sale over a period of time. And it's about $500 per year if you work it out. And I might mention that this is assuming a single shade sale per tree. In some instances, 
that would suffice. But I know of one tree where you would have needed three shade sails to provide the same area of shade for those kids as the tree that was removed. And then you're starting to talk about fairly big money over a period of time. There is also the issue of heat-related deaths. Now, very often, when you talk to people about arboriculture and urban trees, they come back at you with the, oh, well, they're very pretty. They're sort of optional extras that you have as decoration in your city. Well, no, they're not. They are fundamental to the livability and the sustainability of our cities. They are not just decorative. They function and they serve. And as a consequence, as you've seen, they have real economic value. And perhaps this is being shown brilliantly in work by Nigel Tapper and a number of others that talk about excess deaths. Now, is there anyone in this room not aware of the concept of excess deaths? Just put up your hand. A few of you. Excess deaths are what happens during a heat wave when uh, in a city, the death rate's more or less constant over the year, and then when you have a heat wave, up they shoot. And the, uh, the folks in the know, the demographers, describe this, I think it's a lovely term, excess deaths. Um, it would be a great term as long as you're not amongst them. And um, there have been some massive examples of excess deaths. The best known was the one in 2003 in Europe where they estimate 35,000 people died. Uh, in Melbourne, during the period from the 26th of January to the 1st of February, there were 374 excess deaths. Um, you might be interested to know that they were nearly all in the western and northern suburbs, the lower, lower socioeconomic groups. Um, the predominant uh, age was over 65. Um, most of the people were of... Um, European uh, immigrant background. Most of them lived in uh, simple houses without air conditioning. Okay, so if some of you have got family that meet those criteria, you might like to think about that. Um, certainly, there are members of my family, my immediate family, who meet all of those criteria at the present time. And you might ask, why were they so great in the western suburbs of Melbourne? And the answer is, no trees much less water, drier soil. Some of that's natural, by the way, but some of it was because of water restrictions. And people died. Nigel Tapper came out in the media and said, you know, if it gets really hot in a couple of days' time, you might be wise to get everyone out there watering away because if you reduce the temperature by a few degrees, some people won't die. Now, that's pretty serious stuff. And I've been to the insurance company, by the way, and said, if we cut those excess deaths, would it be possible to put a value on it? In other words, what's the value of a human life? And the answer is yes, we can do it, and we probably will do it. It's complicated, because by some people, they actually save money if they chuff off. Okay, They're taking very high... Um, cost to maintain them in the health system. But for a large number of these people, we actually as a society lose by their deaths. But the data is not that easy to get, let me assure you. And the other thing you might be interested in doing, because some of you could do this locally and in your cities, 
you might just cost the extra ambulance call-outs. How many extra ambulances were called out during the heat wave? That data you can get. And it's hundreds of call-outs at thousands of dollars per call. So you're talking millions of dollars just from ambulance call-outs. Now, what could we do? We could vegetate. There's the challenge. Here's a challenge for you. I've told you, you can make a difference by taking your trees and your urban forests seriously. You can make a difference to the environment. Do you know that in the city of Melbourne, the Department of Health for the state government has now got aerial photographs of virtually all of the suburbs where they believe there will be increased excess deaths during a heat wave. And what are they doing? They have a major momentum trying to encourage the local water authorities and local councils to green those areas. Because you can go, and this is not looking at a suburb on a massive scale, they've actually worked down to saying, if you look at the aerial photo of this block of houses and flats or units, there's sufficient cover, we don't have to worry. The one two streets up, not a tree on it, that's where we've got to do something. And there is a momentum. And what is it about? It's not about being green. It's not about being loving of the trees. It's about sheer economics. We cannot afford those ambulance call-outs. We cannot afford those excess deaths. Now, I wanted to get to the point before the great hook comes and hauls me off this stage of talking about a few things where no one's done any numbers. But I want to discuss these with you and challenge you to come up with some examples like this. So, for example, what is the value of trees planted along waterways? Now, you all know that this is, a, again, an interesting situation. You plant the trees, they slow the water. If they slow the water, they spread the flood. That's straight out simple physics. Agreed? If you slow the water and you spread the flood, you could cause damage to areas that have never been flooded. But in lots of places, you can slow the water, spread the flood in areas where there's not going to be any great problem, and you can reduce the amount of erosion. You can reduce the erosion enormously. Now, along Taylor's Creek, they planted a whole range of vegetation in the mid-80s. The waters have slowed, the erosion is no longer a problem. There is no longer silting up of the major river. And the major river doesn't carry silt to the major harbour, which is Port Phillip Bay. A real economic advantage. Who's modelling it? I'm not going to. It's not an arborist job. It's an economist's job. But someone has to do it. And furthermore, let me rem uh, remind you that as you spread the river the litter that's being carried down goes to the edges where it can be picked up before it enters major waterways simply and efficiently. That one can be costed very simply and yet people aren't doing it. So here's a challenge. Those trees are providing a real service that has significant economic value at two levels. Saving soil, saving pollution. But here's an unexpected bonus. It makes litter trapping so much easier. 
This one I love. Are you aware of the scheme in Britain where they're planting trees along roadsides close to the roads to slow the traffic? This would be an absolute eye-opener for any of the Australian road authorities whose mission in life appears to me, apart from getting vehicles from A to B as quickly as possible, to remove as many trees as they can, okay, without public protest. Some of their management is appalling. Have a look at this scheme. It's, there's lots of data on the website, and what they're doing is they're using the concept of lazy diagonals, which is an optical illusion created by the trees, to slow you down. And they find that most people automatically take their foot off the accelerator. This will save lives. It's about time there was some sort of Australian equivalent. What about the value of trees preserving the life of surface coatings? It's a massive area of expenditure. Paint, the life of paint can be doubled and, and sometimes more. Everybody knows that if you can stop the intense summer sun getting into your interior, you can prolong the life of your house furnishings. Every one of you that drives a car knows that the enamel on the car, the plastics inside, are subjected to heat. And every trader that I, I've spoken to says that the value of the shade outside their premises in summer is an important component of their business. So important, in fact, that if you went to remove that tree, they will threaten to sue you for the losses that might ensue. They know how much the trees provide in attracting people to their business. Do you? And I bet you don't. And we should. Over and over again, there are examples of vegetation providing services and performing functions that have real economic value that nobody's thinking about. So I said before, here's the man with the hose. Can you see the rippling in the line? If we just go back, well, I don't even have to go back. You can see the contrast here between the road, the shaded area where the railway line is, and here in the open yards. Another economic value. There is a lot of data, an awful lot of data, that is now being available through your health departments, and I'd urge you, wherever you live, to have a look at this data, that talks about the benefits of trees in particular in relation to both passive and active recreation. In Victoria, the Department of Health has come up with this statement that they're aimed at promoting health and well-being outcomes through promoting the use of alternative water resources such as storm water and recycled water to maintain grease spaces, thereby enhancing physical activity and livability. Now, this is not an arborist speaking. Deadman is a health department official who collects data on, on the, the, the demographics. What do people do? What is their health status? How early do they die? What diseases have they got? And he has really fantastic evidence and data that says, if you provide passive and active recreational facilities nearby, if they're flat without any trees, 
No one goes. As soon as you start putting vegetation and trees in particular, the usage rates go up. As soon as the usage rates go up, a whole lot of um, health indicators, bad health indicators, start to improve. That's a real economic value. And don't you find it incredible that a health department official would be advocating to the water authorities the use of water to irrigate trees? This is something that would be unheard of a decade ago. We are in interesting times. The world and the climate is changing. And the opportunities for those of us who are interested in managing trees are absolutely enormous. This is just providing some real um, numbers in relation to ambulance call-outs. I've mentioned it briefly because I thought I mightn't get this far before the hook came. And so, just to remind you, we are talking about $8.4 million over a, 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 relative, a few years. And you'll notice that in areas where there is poor cover from trees, notably in Sydney and in Melbourne, the western suburbs, they're expecting uh, a 50% increase in cardiovascular disease if we do nothing. And if they get that 50% increase in cardiovascular disease, the load on our health system is simply enormous. So, all in all, I'd like you to start thinking about these sorts of tables and charts. I want you to start realising that vegetation is more than the tree. Vegetation is part of urban infrastructure. And while we're on it, let's get a few other things off our chest. Don't call them green infrastructure. Call them infrastructure. The engineer doesn't talk about the concrete infrastructure and the uh, bitumen infrastructure and the lamppost infrastructure. They talk about infrastructure because they think all of that hard stuff has a right to be there. As soon as you talk about green infrastructure, you're reducing our component to second-rate citizen status. It's infrastructure. It is urban infrastructure, and it's just as important as the roads, the footpaths, the communication, and the other services that are provided. And in some ways, I think we could probably argue that it's more important, because many of the things that I've talked about in the last little while relate to your livability, the quality of your life. They also impact on how long you live and how well you live. So I think this aspect of arboriculture is about life and death. It's not something to be dealt with lightly. And I might add, it's not something that should be left to amateurs like me. It's about time real economists got onto some of these numbers. Real economists started looking at all of these sort of aspects of the services and functions that are provided and really put these numbers through the gorilla. Randy Stringer is going to mention, or his, his um, delegate, Mark, is going to talk about some aspects of putting real numbers to water scarcity and, and, and water-related um, uh, arboricultural aspects in a few minutes' time in a session later today. That's what we want. We want people who are economists looking at these sorts of services. These numbers will stand the test of time for 100,000 trees, carbon sequestered, electric carbon emissions saved, water saved, 
the prolonging the life of bitumen. All worth looking at. And the estimates, all of the, um, the bases for those estimates in that previous table are, are available to you. I would welcome anyone looking at these and challenging them. I would welcome any added suggestions for looking at more services and more functions. A few years ago, at a TreeNet conference, two young economists came up with the value of a street tree in Adelaide. They said the tree was worth $171. And I asked people from Adelaide, in a year, how much did you spend on a tree, maintaining it? And the answer was less than 20 bucks. So in Adelaide, they are getting $171 per annum of value from an investment of $20 per annum. That's good value in anyone's book. And I just remind you, look at all the things that could be added to this table now. Look at all the extra components that could be included. They didn't know the repaving savings. They didn't really understand all of the shade aspects. They didn't put in even work that was done in South Australia that looked at the value of shade in reducing the use of sunscreens and reducing the risks of melanoma for office workers coming out for their lunchtime break and sitting under the shade of Adelaide's trees. We do have numbers for that, believe it or not. So they said it's a gross underestimate. So when you look at cities, I want you to think, and I don't want you just to think in one dimension, I want you to think of different scenarios. And this is not meant to be real numbers. This is my attempt and possibly my last attempt at a table like this. A street tree, at least $180 per year. A street tree shading bitumen, 700 bucks of benefit per year. A dwelling tree on, an, on a stable site, a couple of thousand dollars. A stable tree on a, on a, a, tree on a an unstable site, two and a half thousand dollars. School where you need shade, twelve hundred bucks per year from the tree. I want you to think of the trees that do share their characteristics so that you can come out with a value for your urban forest. But I also want you to start thinking about the trees that are in unique positions and providing different services and different benefits that we mightn't have thought about. And so I want to close leaving this table on the screen. And I want to challenge you. I know I haven't thought of everything. I know there are many other services that you know about. If they haven't appeared in the literature, you have a moral and professional duty to let people know of those services and those functions. So at the end of the day, we can come up with a real value of each of our specimen trees and the real value of our urban forest as our climates change. Thank you for your attention. This concludes Dr. Greg Moore's talk on the value of urban trees during climate change. If you would like to learn more about urban forest sustainability, you can find additional materials at the ISA web stores, including books on planning the urban forest, ecology, economy, and community development, and urban tree health a practical and precise estimation method. 
If you have recommendations for topics to cover in future podcasts in this series, please feel free to contact the ISA at elearning at isa-arbor.com. Thank you for listening to this episode, which was brought to you by the Bartlett Tree Expert Company, caring for America's trees since 1907. This is Tom Smiley at the Bartlett Tree Research Laboratory, reminding you to subscribe to this podcast series and join us next time for another episode of Science of Arboriculture. Trees in every country, trees you know we can. Work together and learn what we need to meet the challenge. Traditional skills and modern techniques. Whatever language you speak, you have a world to offer every day. Climb with the ISA.